Welcome to Trinity Presbyterian Church Women's Bible Study. We're on Lesson 7 this time, covering Chapter 10, When Christ Sat Down. And I am substituting for Susan this week. I look forward to uh, being with you, going through Chapter 10 with you. So let's pray before I get started. Gracious Father, our glorious Savior, thank you for this wonderful book and this wonderful study that uh, Susan has brought to us. Lord, would you be with us as we look into chapter 10 more deeply? Would you illumine our understanding? Would you give us ears to hear you? Would you use my mouth as your instrument to convey what these women need to hear. We ask it all in the precious name of Jesus, our great high priest. Amen. So this is my first time uh, studying Hebrews. So I pulled out my old international inductive study Bible, which has good wide margins and about a line and a half spacing, so I, I wanted to mark it up. So if you'll forgive me, I am using the, an older New American Standard version. I won't be reading too much from it, but if you wish, please just follow along with your, your ESV. Um, I was prompted by Amy Wood, my facilitator for my study group, to, to just read through Hebrews regularly in one sitting is if, if that's all possible so I decided I don't have kids at home I decided I'm gonna make it a goal to do that try to do that almost every day and so I've read it through in, in one sitting a couple of dozen times probably and let me tell you sisters that God rewards that effort he has given me so many gifts and insights and I just encourage you to, to study. This is a hard book. I, I found it kind of puzzling the first several times. And then God began to open my eyes and help me to see things. So I encourage you as we near the end here, just to dig into it as much as you possibly can. All right. I'm going to just do a, a brief review here. So uh, thinking about the occasion for this writing, it's probably a sermon delivered maybe at a synagogue, could have been, then been written down. We're not really sure. We don't know who wrote it, obviously. But this pastor was obviously concerned about his congregation. He had fears that they were becoming lax and that they were possibly in danger of rejecting the only means of salvation left to mankind. This, this letter is filled, or sermon, if you will, is filled with exhortations and warnings. So he's urging them not to be like the unfaithful ones, that generation that Moses was about to take into the promised land, and they refused to enter. And this land that he was taking them in, it was where his presence was going to dwell, in the tabernacle, and then ultimately the temple. So let's look at the first three verses of chapter one, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, 
through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the power of his word. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So then the preacher will take us through the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the writings, focusing on specific texts that point to Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament story. You know, the thought crossed my mind this morning, what, what if Hebrews is an encapsulation of what Jesus taught his disciples during those 40 days between his resurrection and ascension? What if? Amazing. So he'll show us then how Jesus is the true human. Remember, God had placed the original humans in the Holy of Holies of his earthly garden temple to rule and work and serve there, which is sort of a description of the Levites' work. The same words are used. Jesus is the human that's anointed to slay the serpent to reach such havoc in the universe. He's the true high priest to whom Aaron's priesthood pointed, who brought his very own spotless blood into the Holy of Holies, God's very presence. And here in chapter 10, he wraps up his argument and demonstrates how Jesus is the true son of David, sitting at God's right hand even now, the king sent to judge the rebellious nations and rule the earth with love and justice. Chapter 10, verses 1 to 18, is the, the last leg of his magnificent argument that he began in chapter 8, just um, describing Jesus' priesthood. Uh, the commentator Gareth Cockrell calls, the, calls these chapters the symphony of our, great, of our high priest's all-sufficient sacrifice. So this is really the heart of his sermon. Chapter 8 is the first movement of this symphony. It's the new promised. The second movement is chapter 9, verses uh, 1 to 22. It's the old, antiquated, the new foreshadowed. And then here we're in the third movement that kind of starts at 9.23, goes through 10.18. It's the new explained. All right, so let's read 9.23, and then we'll jump to 10.1. 9.23, therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, that's the blood of the animals, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And we jump to 10, verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. So we see the connection there between 9.23 of the copies and shadows and 10.1, the law being a shadow. Well, uh, 10.1 through 5 really is a repetition of chapter 8, verses 1 to 7, and 9.23 to 26. And his point here, he's just summarizing that the blood of goats and bulls could never make perfect or make whole. It's not morally perfect, but think of it as whole and bring full cleansing. These sacrifices point forward to the sacrifice of Jesus and the total cleansing that once for all sacrifice could bring, would bring. The animal blood could not bring internal 
cleansing of the conscience, but only the external cleansing. Then verses 5 to 10 of chapter 10 is really the heart of his argument here in, in chapter 10. This is new material. He's going to take us through another Old Testament passage, Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8. So I'm going to read 5 uh, through 10. Therefore, when he, Jesus, comes into the world, he, Jesus, says, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast not desired, nor hast thou taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do thy will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So therefore means we're looking back to what was ahead about Jesus' coming. So when he comes into the world, that is pointing us back to Hebrews 3, 1, where Jesus is called the apostle. He's the apostle of God, the one sent. Then we learn about sacrifices and offerings. It's in the first line and then the third line again. And the, the thing here, the, the David was saying, and then our preacher has Christ saying, that it wasn't the sacrifices and offerings that God really desired. Even though he required them, he wanted them to be offered with a sincere heart, and so often they weren't. That was the problem. And then David says, and the preacher changes the wording. If you go back to look at Psalm 40 and the Hebrew version, this is a translation of the Greek version the pastor used. So he has Jesus saying this instead of David. He said, the verse says here, a body you have prepared for me. The Hebrew literally says, ears you have dug for me. So in other words, you have given me ears to hear you, that I might obey you with my whole body and life. Uh, Karen Job, she's a, a commentator who did an article on the, the method, the rhetorical technique that the preacher is using here. She says this about what uh, the preacher is doing. When Christ came, it was not merely to do, to desire to do God's will, but to accomplish God's good pleasure, God's redemptive will once for all. What David desired, the Hebrew says, I desired to do thy will. Here Christ accomplished, I came to do your will. When I was meditating on this, I thought of the, the time in John 4 where Jesus had just finished the, uh, the, the conversation with the, the Samaritan woman at the well and his disciples returned with food. And his first words were to them were, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus' sustaining power 
was to do God's will. This is what he was getting at in that very puzzling teaching in John 6 when he told the people that his body was true food, his blood true drink, and that unless they ate his flesh and drank his blood, they would have no life in him, in them. The preacher of Hebrews has been urging his people to consume Jesus. Are you consuming Jesus? As you eat and drink every day, ponder the fact that you must do that in order to have physical life in you. If you don't, you'll eventually die. Nevertheless, those elements are only good enough to sustain your physical existence for so long. They are a metaphor of the true bread and drink that God has sent from heaven. And when we take communion together on Sundays, we remember that true body and true blood provided for us. Verse 10 of this section, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. By God's will we have been set apart as His through the once for all sacrifice of Jesus' human life and death. This is the first use of the name Jesus since Chapter 7, verse 22, where he says that Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Next section is also a recap. That's verses 11 to 14. He's contrasting here, I'm not going to read these, the Levitical priesthood whose repeated sacrifices could never take away sins with Jesus' atoning work, which was finished. And then he sat down at God's right hand, which the preachers already told us in chapter 1, verse 3, and again in 8, 1. So he is waiting there at God's right hand until God subdues all his enemies, which first came up in chapter 1, 13. So the climactic sentence of this argument, the whole, the whole symphony, 8, 1 through 10, 14, is right here. For by one offering... He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. He has made you whole, me whole, for all time. Do you believe that, sisters? And we've got the next section, 15 to 18. He's just going to kind of wrap up his major argument here. Here we're going to see the new covenant fulfilled in Jesus. He goes back to quoting a couple of verses from Jeremiah that he quoted in 8 already in full. This is a reminder for us, for the, for the listeners, the readers, of heart obedience and forgiveness that have been provided by God's grace. All along, God has called for heart obedience from His people. They either could not or would not obey Him from a humble heart. So God took on flesh Himself. He sent His Son to set us free. And if the Son sets you free, Jesus said, you will be free indeed. Do you see yourself as who you are? Sanctified, set apart, released from your slavery to sin? Pastor Mike Sherritt, the founding pastor of Fort Worth Prez, uh, wrote a book a number of years ago called um, Watching Over the Heart. 
he says, I'm kind of paraphrasing, you are no longer a sinner, but a saint who sins. You have access, sisters, to the very presence of God by the once for all sacrifice of the spotless blood of Jesus. You have mercy and grace in your time of need. Do you believe that? Do you realize that that is who you are? No, we don't see with our eyes that Jesus has accomplished his mission. He's still on his throne, awaiting the day when all his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. But he is coming back. So now the major argument is done, and the exhortations are going to rev up in intensity. The pastor has now given us the true meat that he said they really couldn't handle. So he had to kind of get their attention about that. And then he went on to give them that meat. All right, so 19 through 25 is the next big section. Because of all that we have learned about Jesus, our great high priest, he says, don't be like that faithless generation that wouldn't enter God's rest which is his very presence because of unbelief. Hold fast to your faith. He says, Jesus has come in fulfillment of God's promises. He has pro provided the once for all sacrifice and he will come again for those who eagerly await him. That's your hope. That's the anchor that keeps your soul. And because of what he has done for us, let us love one another and provoke one another to persevere in doing good. And he's going to go into more details about how to do this in the final chapter. Chapter 13. Next section is verses 26 to 31. So you're now more accountable. He shared the meat. You remember back in chapter 6 there was... There was a warning passage as well. Um, he, he says, you know, those, those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasted the word of God and the powers to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Well, here he, he, he revs it up. It, it's even more intense. Now we know the whole truth about who Jesus is. And so, listen to what he says in verse 29 of chapter 10. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Friends, only terrifying judgment awaits those who reject this magnificent, eternal redemp redemption provided by our triune God. He's, he's really sounding the alarm here because he wants them to stay in the way. I thought of Psalm 2, which is really about uh, Jesus, the, the king, the son, it says, Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all 
who take refuge in him. And he finishes up the final section, 32 to 39. He says, you've been faithful. He reminded them also in chapter 6, after that warning there, you've been faithful, you've been loving. Don't stop now. Don't throw away your great reward. Endure. And then the last brief Old Testament passage, passage that, he, that he mentions in the whole sermon in the letter, Habakkuk 2, 3 and 4, down there in verses 37 and 38. My righteous one shall live by faith. And then the preacher says to them, we're not like that faithless generation that shrank back in unbelief. But we have faith and will preserve our souls. And then in these last three chapters, 11, 12, and 13, he will flesh that out, that great triad that Paul introduced us to, faith, hope, love. He'll flesh that out for us how that we, uh, we, can, we can do that and live this faithful, faithful life. As I wrap up here and, and close, I've got three questions for you. Sisters, has your faith been strengthened by the pastor's presentation? Do you have greater confidence now than ever that Jesus accomplished God's will for you? Do you know even more unshakably that your sins are forgiven, that Jesus is at the Father's right hand interceding for you? Do you have full assurance that you now live in the very presence of God? Do you believe that the Holy Spirit is in you, empowering you to be a living sacrifice for His glory? Be diligent to till the soil of your heart. Sisters, has your hope been strengthened by the preacher's presentation? Can you rest assured that Jesus is at God's right hand waiting for the Father to give the word for Him to return, to take you to Himself and to make all things new? Now, that's hard because we don't yet see all things subjected to Him. That was first mentioned in chapter 2, verse 8. Heck, we don't even know what the summer will look like if, if mask restrictions and social distancing guidelines will ever be lifted. But Jesus' return is a sure thing. Endure. Be diligent to till the soil of your heart. Sisters, have you felt in the pastor's presentation the love of the triune God for you and for his creation? Is your heart overflowing with his love so that others can see it and sense it in you and give glory to your Father in heaven? Be diligent to till the soil of your heart. Let's pray. Most loving Father, whose will it is for us to give thanks for all things, 
to fear nothing but the loss of you and to cast all our cares on you who cares for us. Preserve us from faithless fears and worldly anxieties that no clouds of this mortal life may hide from us the light of that love which is immortal and which you have manifested to us in your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. <laughs>